This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hi, I'm Jim Stroud, and this is my podcast. Today I had the absolute pleasure of speaking with Barb Hyman, who's the founder and CEO of Sapia, who is building a fair world through ethical AI. I was um, very curious to hear what she had to say because ethical AI is such a hot topic. And uh, I asked my questions and she, <laughs> she answered them honestly, passionately, and um, gave me some food for thought. And I think you also... Uh, we'll have some food for thought after listening to this interview, uh, which will begin right after this. This episode of the Jim Stroud Podcast is brought to you by Source Owls. Source Owls is an online platform that brings together thousands of experienced executive recruiters with hiring managers to fill pressing human capital needs quickly and efficiently. Are you looking to improve your recruitment results while lowering the cost per hire? Wouldn't it be great if you could name your price for each placement? Source Owls uses a breakthrough recruitment ecosystem that delivers high-quality candidates quickly and at a significant cost savings. Here's how it works. Source Owls puts you in control with its Name Your Price model. That's right. You name your price for each hire. We partner with thousands of niche recruiters across the country. Our recruiter ecosystem grows daily as we add new recruiters to the platform. You select what recruiters you want to work with and create teams for different job types. Imagine using one vendor agreement to tap into an ever-growing community of successful recruiters. These recruiters have a minimum of five years of experience and are eager to work on your recruiting projects. The platform is simplistically designed with talent pipeline management, so you will always know where your candidates are in the interviewing process. With 80-plus automated notifications, candidates and recruiters are updated seamlessly. The results are guaranteed, and there is no cost to post your jobs. SourceHouse allows you to take control of the recruitment process. You have never encountered recruiting like this before. Go to our website and start posting your first job now, or schedule a demo with us. To learn more about how Source Owls can produce results for you, click the link in the podcast description. Hello, and welcome to the Jim Stroud Podcast. Today, we have a very special guest. Special guest, tell us, who are you and what do you do? Hi, thanks so much for having me. I'm Barb Hyman. I'm founder and CEO of Sapia.ai, and I'm coming to you all the way from Melbourne, Australia. Woo! Love Australia. Love the, the land down under. Put a shrimp on the barbie. <laughs> very nice. Very nice. Uh, now, you were Sapia Labs. Tell me a little bit about that, if you would. What do you guys do there? 
Yeah, look, Sapia Labs um, is our innovation arm. We're a business that's been around for five years now, and it's really been founded because of all the pain that I experienced was uh, when I was a practitioner. So I came from being a lawyer, then a strategy consultant, and then finally a head of HR for a few different organizations. And I just felt there had to be a better way, Jim, that the whole experience of applying for a job was dehumanizing, exhausting, um, diminishing, um, biased. And I wanted to fix that. And at the same time, I could see that hiring was a huge tax on people, um, often mm. a very invisible tax. When you think of all the hiring managers who don't have that as their job, they have another job. Um, and so I wanted to fix it. And so that's the journey we've been on. It took us two years to build a product and get to product market fit. And now we work with global companies, including US companies, which is very cool. Nice, nice. Now work with all these different AI technologies that you're developing and just sort of AI technologies in general. Um, how do you see AI technologies currently being used in the hiring process? And what are the potential ethical implications of their use? Because ethics in AI is a big topic over here. Yeah, as it should be everywhere. Um, so look, AI has been around for a long time, um, mm. including in recruitment. If you think about what AI is, it's really using machines to do what humans do, but typically more efficiently. And the earliest example of that is CV parses or resume parses, um, where you're trying to figure out the patterns of data between the ones that were hired and the ones that have applied to try and make that more efficient. I don't believe that that is a good use of AI. It clearly gives efficiency to the organization, but it creates a lot of different problems when it comes to bias and limiting the talent pool that you're looking at. So I think helping the market understand and be educated about what is safe, what is ethical, not just for them, but also for the candidate, because that's the first exposure they've got to your brand. And, you know, it's a really competitive market in the U.S. for talent, right? Unemployment is still really low. Mm. Whether you're looking for hourly talent or you're looking for white-collar talent, you've got to get it right. And I think that your brand is the first interaction. I think inclusivity starts at the first gate. And so you've got to solve for ethical AI both in the organization and how it's used, but also from a candidate perspective. You know, as you say that, um, something pops up in my head. Um, there was a debate at a conference I was speaking at so many years, so many years ago, and definitely pre-COVID, <laughs> of course. <laughs> and there was a debate over ethics and AI. And I remember what it was. I remember what it was. Microsoft had released an AI called Tay. And uh, I don't know if you're familiar with that, but they, they programmed it on top of Twitter. And uh, people would ask Tay questions and Tay would learn from people. And then uh, eventually... Uh, it would learn from the people's questions and responses and, and adapt and so forth. And before not too long into the experiment, Tay started turning evil because people started asking it all kinds of, of, of racist and damaging questions, for lack of a better word, and purposely trying to turn it evil. All that to say, the debate at the time was that there is no way AI or these AI tools can be totally unbiased because human beings program them. Have you had that debate before? Um, yeah, and if yeah. So, how so would you I, answer? I, yeah, yeah. I, I want to say a few things on that. So when we Please. started and we were trying to figure out how do you create a technology that people love and can trust that is unbiased, and the problem with most AI tools like the resume passes is they're based on human decisions. Most mm -hmm. AI tools are based on a training data set that comes from you and I. And no matter how hard you try and how positive your intent, you cannot train us out of our biases because most biases are unconscious. 
And you also struggle with explainability, actually figuring out what decisions human humans made um, to figure out how you remove that bias. You know, the greatest algorithm in the world is the one inside our skull, but we're not very good at understanding it. And so the key thing to look at is where does that data come from? If it comes from a human decision, my starting point would be it's not ethical. What we tried really hard to do, and we experimented, Jim, we actually built a predictive algorithm on personality based off Twitter. So one really? of our okay. members scraped 2 million tweets. And on my on, on Twitter, a lot of people self-declare their Myers-Briggs, right? Now, we all know Myers-Briggs is not a tool that you can safely use really for anything other than a bit of self-awareness. But we wanted to see how predictive language was, in particular language from Twitter. And it was highly predictive. But hmm. we never actually released the research. I can share it with your listeners if you like, because we know Twitter tends to trigger a whole lot of people. And the reason why it's so flawed as a mechanism to do anything around people is because one Twitter is not representative of the general population, right? Not sure. everyone in the universe is on Twitter. The way you tweet is not the way you really communicate in life, right? This is, again, another problem with Twitter. And so you're risking all sorts of adverse impact that you can't even see, um, you don't you don't even know about, right? Because you really are, as you said, using the language that we humans are using on Twitter, and feeding that back into your your process, and that's the risk with GPT. Is GPT, as you know, has just scanned the universe of content out there, and the work that they've done in three to four is they've tried to fine tune the experience of engaging with it. We've actually just did another research paper looking at how the personality of GPT has changed from three hmm. to four. They've effectively fine-tuned it, right? This is where the human comes in. Someone in that organization has made decisions that say, when you say this, that's bad. When you say this, it's good. And there are plenty of examples of how they've applied that to make it a safer experience, a less, you know, a more edifying experience um, to use GPT for. So there is you know, that is arguably positive bias. It's trying to dull down the human, you know, element that lives out mm -hmm. there in the internet world. Um, but it is still a human making a decision about what makes for a better experience. What I think the key thing is, if you're using AI in hiring, is you've got to look at what we call rule-based models, not human machine learning models where a human is in the loop. So let me explain that to you. In the old days, and interrupt me anytime because I can go off on a tangent. I no, really please, love. please, you're doing great. So in the old days, you would say to an organization, look, we know there are these five salespeople, and then we have a hundred that are very good. Can you survey the five versus the hundred and tell us which are the qualities that make the five great? And then go out and find more like the five. And then we'll drive up our sales. Now, um, the problem with that is you can't explain it. Um, and that is a big limitation of machine learning. And if you can't explain it, you shouldn't use it. Fundamentally, you know, there is no law that says that right now, but if you cannot explain to you as a candidate or to your recruiter or to your legal team what this thing is doing and how it's working, I think you just put a big top, uh, cross on the ethical box. Another way to actually use AI that is truly ethical is when you actually agree a set of rules or parameters with the organisation. Jim, what do you want when you're hiring? You want someone who's a great thinker, who's a great communicator, who can look around corners, inspire people to go with them. There's a profile. And mm -hmm. everyone goes, yep, that's what we want. And then your only job is to make sure that the data that's being used for that is clean and absent of demographics, absent of PII, and that the science that lies behind it can be measured in terms of validity, 
um, bias, right? And the beauty of AI is that you capture data. Data is measurable. You can see all of those things. So if there's one thing your listeners take away, it's use AI that is based on rule-based models, not machine learning models, and you've made a big step forward towards ethical AI. Do you think that um, that job applicants should be made aware that AI is is involved in the hiring process in some way? One do you think? One yeah, two hundred. The reason yeah. why I ask that is because there was some research, that, uh, a survey. Uh, I want to say Pew Research um, did a survey, and they surveyed um, different um, job seekers to get their feeling on AI. And of course, job seekers that didn't know the whole the AI tools and and, and uh, technologies that recruiters use, but just the very thought that a machine was involved in the hiring process made them very nervous, you know. And a, a large group of them said they would not apply because, <clears throat> excuse me, they they would not apply because of the AI tools in there, uh, which sparked a lot of controversy over here. Uh, you say that applicants should be made aware two hundred percent. Why do you say that? So two things that we've just seen independent research published by some academics that says the opposite, that from a diversity perspective, women applying for a tech role were more likely to apply, were more likely to stick through the process knowing it was AI because they believe they would have a fairer chance at the job. Really? Yeah. Interesting. Uh, so there is a growing awareness in market. And, you know, Keith Sunderling, the commissioner of EOC, talks about this ad nauseum that the right tools will actually create equity in a world where we won't, as much as we try, we won't, we can't. Um, there's nothing you can do to remove my bias that I love someone who went to the same school as me and who loves yoga and, you know, I just feel like I want to work with them. Mm-hmm. We all engage in mirror hiring, you know. Why do we have organisations that look like the people at the top of those organisations? Because they put their stamp on what great looks like. And there is so much talent that's being missed out on because we can't see through our own prism of experience. So um, fundamentally, uh, the research shows that. And Mm. second thing we see in our data, 2.7 million candidates, it's fully transparent. They frigging love it. I think at the end of the day, what candidates want is to be heard, to be understood, to get good communication, to have an experience that they feel safe with, comfortable with. Now, some AI tools will do that, say if you will, some won't, and some will sit somewhere in between. So at the end of the day, I think if you said to someone and you put the AI to one side and you said, hey, Jim, we're going to give everyone an interview and everyone's going to get this learning experience. It's going to help them whether they get the job or not. And you can take your time, go make your cup of tea, go and deal with your kids and then come back when it suits you. And I'm not, I don't care what you look like right? You don't need to figure out hair and makeup. That's what people want. They want something that they can trust. Mm -hmm. And I think also from a communication and transparency, if you're not telling them that you're using AI, I think you you kill trust at the first gate. And I'm a big believer, having been a CHRO, that trust is culture. And so transparency creates trust. Trust builds good cultures. The trust you're you're speaking of, is that coming from an organization self-regulating themselves or would that come from some governmental body saying you must be regulated by the government to ensure fairness? Where where does that trust come from? Look, I think there are so many things that HR can do broadly and TA to endear trust early on with candidates, 
with employees, right? And mm. mostly that comes from transparency. You know, we're introducing a new pay structure for these reasons. Um, and here's, I think pay transparency has massively accelerated trust. Yeah. Because mm. without it, then you don't really trust whether you're being paid fairly. So I think that's a big trait to drive trust. I definitely think regulation is needed. There is regulation now. Like, let's not forget the EEOC federal legislation. Obviously, New York City law is coming into play that says you yep. need to be transparent. You need to have a bias audit. You need to be clear whether a human is involved, a human needs to be in the loop. You know, there are a number of parameters to be met to make it safe. Um, and I think that's good because it creates guardrails, you know, and it, and, it, and it creates more confidence in the market to use the tools. What I worry about with the US, you know, when I was over there recently, I go there often, is mm. I feel the market is clouded by fear and shrouded in ignorance when it comes to AI. I think the media's done a really great job of building that reality, which is not mm -hmm. a truth, that if you actually look at AI used in the right way that is based on ethical foundations, you will accelerate diversity, you will transform your brand, and you will deliver efficiency. You know, efficiency is almost the obvious. The other elements that you should be driving towards with AI is to fix the diversity problem to fix the fairness problem, to fix the experience problem. I think we often focus too much on the recruiter, um, which is important, but not enough on those other elements, which are just as important for the recruiter's job, getting enough people to choose from, filling their diversity targets. So I think regulation is needed and I worry about just, you know, the the how to get people to lean in and learn and be educated about what is safe, what is ethical AI, what questions to ask. I know a lot, a lot of organizations, they look at tools like, like Sapia and others uh, because they recognize the need uh, for that. Um, but I do know that some organizations, they're looking at these tools and they're wondering, okay, how can I evaluate a tool? Uh, what benchmarks should I look at? What widgets should you have? How do I know your tool is performing well? How do I know it's effective? Not just for your tool in specific, but just AI tool overall. And, and what should I be looking for? And I want to make sure that the tool I invest in is ethical and fair. Mm. So, look, the market is kind of, particularly the regulatory market, is is really informing that. And so what we mm. did was our Sapia Labs team went and did a, a, a scan of all the research out there. What is the EU saying? What are the New York um, conversations and discussions like? And they're really common themes, right? You you know them. They're, they're, is it unbiased, which you can measure, right? That's the beauty of using AI's data. Is it valid, um, which is also something that is easily measurable, a little bit more challenging with machine learning tools because it's a different way of, in the context of assessment, measuring um, than what you would with traditional uh, instruments. Is it explainable, right? Explainability is just you hear everywhere. The EU talks about explainability, transparency, um, and uh, what have I missed there? Transparency. So the, the, the themes are all common right? Transparency, can I explain it? Is it visible what's going on? Can everyone in the business understand what's going on? Can I look underneath the tool? Can I look behind the tool? I think the days of, hey, Jim, here's a number. And, you know, Barb's a 37. She's awesome. You should hire her. I mean, 37 doesn't sound like a good number, but let's, <laughs> you know, out of 40. Um, so there's no way you're going to trust that, you know, like, mm -hmm. I don't want to be a number. I want to be understood. So get to know me 
in a way that um, helps you make a better decision. I think the other thing is you have to have the human and the AI. Like no one's going to ever say, you know what, cut the humans out. We don't need recruiters. Let's just go from AI to offer. Um, and so really this is about empowering you to be smarter. Like that's what excites me about AI is if you think in your life, every decision you make in your life, who you partner with, what organization you work with, what team you work with, you know, you want data, you want objective data to help you make a better decision. That's all AI is doing. It's not displacing you. It's giving you something to reference. It's going to challenge your thinking. Um, it's going to help you articulate your thinking. It's going to help you sell that candidate internally. Like that's what it is. It's not some magic utopia, you know? Um, mm. So I think if you think about it as really the co-pilot we've been talking about for a while, co-pilot, not autopilot, that mm. I think is the safest way to think about it. Do you think there would be a uh, trend of companies acting as third-party auditors of different AI tools just oh, to see that they all pass muster? Do they already have that in Australia? It's already, it's already growing, isn't it? In the US, I get so many emails saying, well, <laughs> so we've gone through that journey. We work with an audit firm that's been in the US, BLDS, for about 40 years that's steeped in this space in terms of algorithmic audits. Um, but there's a cottage industry growing. I think the challenge with the New York City law is that the boundaries of what does a good audit look like are not defined. So the mm. risk is it is uh, get the audit you want that's going to tick the box rather than the audit that you should get that's going to make everyone feel safe. But look, I'm confident that regulation will evolve and the boundaries of what good looks like. And most reputable organisations know what a reputable auditing firm looks like. Um, and, you know, it's a litigious community, the US. So I don't think your legal counsel is going to let you use some, you know, two-person business in, you know, in, sure. in some office, right? They're going to want to go with someone who really is credible in this space because it's a really important, critical feature of the New York City law. Um, so uh, it took us a year. We worked with our firm, you know, in terms of the, the amount of data that we shared, the continuous data sharing, one of the features of our product is that we're able to do bias testing as soon as you go live and then the results are shared visibly real time, which is really powerful for customers. Again, transparency creates trust. You can't go to an organization and say, yeah, we'll do it once and then we'll come back in 12 months, right? It's got to be constant. It's got to be always on. And there's no excuse because the data is there. So why not just convert it into some dashboard? So I, again, I think um, what I'd love to do is sort of, you know, help decision makers just set the bar really high and demand that the industry levels up consistently on certain features like tech manuals, like live bias reporting, obviously everyone now needing an audit on transparency to the candidate, um, on transparency of candidate feedback, like all of that is measurable. And then there's no reason to fear it right? Because you're seeing all the things that are really important to being able to trust it. A lot of things that you mentioned, that, that is from the business facing to the job seeker. What can the job seeker or maybe an advocacy group do to play a role in holding organizations accountable for ethical AI practices? Any ideas there? That's, I'd love to hear what you're seeing uh, on that. I So in Australia, um, one group that we have had interaction with, and I know you have them in the US, is unions. You know, mm. if you think about who really cares about the employees, you know, we work with a number of organizations, Qantas Group and others who have a unionized workforce. And 
we've never had an issue because what they see when they look closely, it is that the um, the equity is massively accelerated from using AI in a way that they've been fighting for for decades. So it can also help strengthen your relationship with unions um, because ultimately they're fighting for everyone uh, in the organisation and there are always groups that are, you know, disadvantaged right now. Um, I haven't seen any other non-union-based advocacy groups uh, other than those who represent very distinct areas like people who are committed to supporting those who are neurodivergent or those with a disability. Um, and they're really important to advocate and demand, you know, partly, uh, so some, some tools report only on race and gender in terms of equity. It's got to include disability, right? Uh, that's a really important group in Australia. That's 16% of our community are people who identify with a disability. You can't ignore them. So, you know, I would suggest that they should advocate for every tool to be transparent about how does this work for those with a disability, both in terms of do they do it, do they finish it, as well as are they more or less likely to be recommended as a result of AI being in use. It's not just one measure of success, right? It's also are you attracting your fair share of diverse talent because of the way you hire? You know, one thing, Jim, that really frustrates me is I don't think organizations look at that enough. You know, if you're a big company, you should have an applicant pool that represents the diversity of the community that you live in. And if it isn't, then there's something wrong with your process or your brand or both. You know, they focus a lot on when you're there and then when you finish through the process. But, you know, are you are you getting under or over your fair share of diverse talent? In Australia, we work with a lot of businesses who are very fixated on that for First Nations, who are the most disadvantaged group in Australia. They represent about 6% of the population. And if you're a large grocery retailer and you're not seeing 6% of your applicant pool from that group, you're, you're, you're failing. So, you know, how many companies in the US look at that um, and start there? Because that's really the only thing you can do in the US, right? You can't have affirmative action like you can mm-hmm. in Australia, but you can do your best to make sure that everyone who you want to attract feels like this is a company I want to work for and this is a process that I really trust. Yeah, that's a good point. When it comes to disenfranchised groups, uh, one group that I seem to see that's not really getting as much attention as, as they perhaps should are the neurodiverse people with autism, people on the on the spectrum in some way. I don't really see them being advocated as much as racial groups or as gender groups mm-hmm. or sexual groups. You know, to go along with the uh, uh, LGBTQ A plus. Mm-hmm community. You know, they have their advocates, but I don't really see anybody really, really truly outspoken for the neurodiverse. I would like to see more of that here in the States. Is is, is that the case in, in Australia as well? Yeah, it, it, it's the same, though I do feel it's changing in the US. I think the EOC came out probably three months ago with a reminder to everyone that, you know, inclusion from a disability perspective, neurodivergent matters and putting people on notice that they need to be tracking that. Um, and then at SIOP, are you familiar with SIOP? No. Yeah, so SIOP is the American, um, really effectively a global community of IO psychs that gather every year. It's quite a phenomenal event. Uh, we went there and presented four papers. You know, a lot of organizations that are in the assessment space um, attend and share their learnings. It's very much an academic and a practitioner conference. But a lot of the presentations were on are we doing the right thing by people with a disability, people in neurodivergent? So it's certainly getting addressed there. Um, we actually see in our technology, in our um, 
chat interview that they perform the best neurodivergent, right? They mm-hmm. perform the best, but the the key thing is that they actually want to do it and they do do it. Forget about how well they go, but if you aren't using an experience, like they don't want to do this. They tell us all the time in their feedback. I feel really nervous when I'm across from someone. It makes me stutter. I feel stressed. You know, what they want is to feel safe, right? Like psychological safety in the application process. I think that we are all seriously underestimating how stressful going for a job interview face-to-face is for people. Um, I'm I'm astonished at how consistent that theme is, even from people who are ostensibly articulate, you know, confident. Um, it really stresses people out. So uh, if you can create an environment that is safe um, and that is basically two things, it's blind. I don't have to show my face because that makes me really stressed and it's untimed. Those two things alone will fundamentally shift your diversity of neurodivergent at the first gate and then at the at the last gate. Wow, you've been very generous with your time. I think we could go on forever talking about this. If someone wanted to get in contact with you and learn more about you personally and about safety, how can they find out about you? Uh, look, I'm I'm a regular on LinkedIn. I'm a bit of a LinkedIn addict. So just look for Barb Hyman and listen out for the Aussie accent and uh, that'll be me. Very good. Thanks again for being on the Jim Stroud podcast. Pleasure. Thanks, Jim. Well, my time is up. I thank you for yours. I'll see you again real soon right here with a brand new episode of the Jim Stroud Podcast. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, feel free to reach out to me. I can be reached by email at jimstroud at jimstroud.com. And one last favor, if I may ask, please rate this podcast. Uh, Five stars is preferred, (laughs) but uh, please uh, comment uh, with your honest opinion. I really appreciate that. All right. Okay, until next time, bye-bye. Ever heard of Stoicism? Chances are, if you have, you've heard of Stoicism with a lowercase s and not Stoicism with an uppercase s. Lone wolves, no emotions, antisocial behavior, cold, indifference, all that is Stoicism with a lowercase s. Stoicism with an uppercase s is the ancient Greek philosophy and virtue ethics framework that centers on service to the cosmopolis, to include your family, friends, community, and planet, and the development of a good moral character. My name is Tanner Campbell, and I'm the host of Practical Stoicism, a three times a week podcast teaching Stoic principles and concepts to anyone interested through the exploration of texts and deep dives into various moral topics. You can find Practical Stoicism where you're already listening to podcasts by searching for Practical Stoicism or by going to stoicismpod.com. I invite you to give it a listen today. You just might like it.